Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 29th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Justice and Local TD, Helen McEntee, joins us uh, this morning to update you on the future of uh, the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital. We'll also discuss the government's uh, decision to proceed with uh, the North-South Interconnector. But we're going to begin with law and order. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us today. Michael. You've been criticised far and wide, it would seem, over what's been called a breakdown in law and order. Do you understand why people have been critical of you? Well, look, Michael, I suppose the first thing I'd say is I am absolutely committed to my job, whether it's, as you mentioned at the outset, my work as a TD, but in particular as Minister for Justice. And that means making sure that people are safe, but above all, supporting the people that work in our justice sector, that's supporting the guards, that's supporting the prison service and anybody else who works in that space. Um, I fully appreciate that there have been a number of incidents and, and I suppose a series of high-profile incidents over the summer, uh, but also look, looking more locally um, and looking in my own county, there have been a number of incidents where people have raised concerns and I am absolutely committed to responding and to making sure that, in, in particular, the Gardaí have the resources that they need and they have the ability to respond to any of these concerns that people have. I think the number one priority here is, and no matter who I talk to, whether it's members of Gardaí themselves or whether it's communities, whether it's businesses, people on the ground, it is more Gardaí on the beat um, and making sure that we have as many members as possible. Um, And that has been my number one priority over the last uh, number of years. We, of course, have had challenges when it comes to Templemore. Uh, COVID meant that it was closed, that we didn't have the relevant numbers coming through Templemore. Um, But that is changing now. I'm really pleased to say we had our first round of recruits that came out only in the last month. And if we look ahead, those numbers are getting higher and higher. And obviously, I want to get us to a place where every three months we have 200 recruits coming out of Templemore. So, you know, look, Mm -hmm. it's not just about bodies on the ground and and Gardaí out on the beach. There's a whole number of issues that I think need to be collectively responded to. And that's certainly what I'm trying to do, not just in Dublin and our city centre, but across the country, making sure that we're engaging with local authorities, with local businesses, with community organisations, particularly with juvenile liaison officers and with our youth diversion programmes, making sure that young people are engaged with at an early age. Um, but look, there is work to be done and, okay. and I'm, I'm, I, I absolutely accept that. But, you know, at the mm. same time, 
it's important to know that the Gardaí are doing a huge amount of work um, and I, I cannot commend que- them enough for the sure. work that they do, do. I suppose the question is if it's enough and the work that you're doing is enough and if uh, the streets are safe, safe. I understand you spoke uh, to Stephen Termini uh, an American tourist who was beaten to a pulp and ended up in a coma for several days by telephone yesterday. Um, do you agree with uh, the American embassy that people should avoid walking alone, if possible, in Dublin, especially during the hours of darkness, and not to wear or display expensive jewellery or watches? Uh, avoid carrying large amounts of cash, avoid placing passports, cash, cell phones, or other valuables in outer pockets of back packs or purses or on tables in public places. That's the advice uh, that followed that beating from the American uh, Embassy to tourists here. It gives a, it paints a very poor picture of, of uh, Dublin in particular. Is Dublin safe? Well, in the most part, I do believe it is safe. Uh, and that's not that I'm saying everything is absolutely perfect and there aren't areas that are more problematic. And that's what I've said, uh, I think, consistently. There are problems and there are issues that need to be addressed. Um, look, as you said, I, I spoke with Mr. Termini yesterday. Um, I won't get into the detail of it, but most importantly, I'm really glad that he is making a good recovery. Obviously, he will have difficulties and, and it is going to be a challenge for him. But he is very clear that, you know, he himself feels that Dublin is a brilliant city, that he would not tell anybody not to come here. Uh, he obviously regrets, as we all do, what has happened. And most importantly, we need to make sure that it doesn't happen to somebody again. Um, the advice that you've just outlined there, if if people maybe are unaware, there are different levels of advice that the US Embassy gives. Ireland is still the safest level. So we are still on par with many of our other European counterparts and other countries for the safest level for people to travel. That's not to say if you or I or anybody else goes to any other country, we would probably be given the same advice. Don't walk on your own at night. Make sure you don't have valuables on your person or visible to other people. You know, so I, I'm not dismissing the advice that's been given there, but it is still the safest level and the safest type of advice that the US Embassy is giving for a particular country. We obviously need to do everything that we can to protect anybody who comes mm. to this country or anybody who lives in any town or city or works there or, you know, socialises and they're, they're out and about. Um, but you would always advise people to take caution, I think, when you're in a larger city. OK, but um, if Dublin is safe, uh, can you explain to us why you've allocated an additional €10 million Euro there to policing the city? Well, the reason I've done that is because I've listened to what people have had to say and I've listened to their concerns. Um, what they've said very clearly is that they wanted a greater visibility and a presence on the ground. Mm. They um, want that in Navin, though, don't they? They do, absolutely. And mm. look, I, I engage regularly with our Chief Superintendent, um, John Dollard. I meet with him regularly and I also speak with our superintendent and our team in Navin. And I have consistently asked uh, and I suppose, you know, relayed to them is there more that needs to be done? Is there more that you need? And again, I'll go back to my first point. I think what we want and what we need are more Gardaí. I'm, I'm very aware that we need more Gardaí and Mead. We received five additional members um, out of the latest recruitment um, members who came out of Templemore recently. But obviously, as those numbers increase, we want Mead and, of course, Navin as part of that, but every part of Mead to get its fair mm. share. So I'm, I'm absolutely focused on the issues that people have been raising uh, not just in Navan, but you know other parts of the county. Have well, you spoken? To, have you spoken to the guard commissioner about how uh, County Meath has the lowest allocation of guardy of any county in the country? I have, uh, and that's not to, to step over my role because obviously it is 
for the Garda Commissioner to allocate members as he sees fit or as his team sees fit. But I have very clearly raised the fact that if you look at our population increase and the massive increase that we've had in recent years, the number of Gardaí has not increased in tow with that. So you will see the last two classes that have come out of Templemore, while they have been smaller classes, and that number is going to increase. Meath has gotten uh, what I would say would be a relatively good fair share of that. At the same time, we need more. We have 318 members at the moment. Um, you know, we, we have on top of that, we have about 46 civilian staff. Uh, we do have guard reserves as well. But I, you know, I want mm. us to have more. And I think in order to be in a place where we have that visibility and that presence on the ground where we can increase our community members, we have 10 at the moment, we want there to be more. It is about getting more guardy out on the beat. Um, and, you know, I, I obviously have to look at my role from a, a country perspective and every county that I travel to says that they need more guardy and they need more members out on the beat. Uh, but of course, I will always represent the people in my constituency and I will always advocate for them as well. Okay, And people in your constituency have been very critical of uh, the guard commissioner uh, and at times you for the low levelling uh, level of policing I- in the county. If the Garda Representative Association votes no confidence in Drew Harris as uh, the commissioner, will his position be tenable? Absolutely. Um, I, I genuinely believe, um, having worked with him for the past three years, he is um, he's a man of integrity and he's somebody who works hard. Um, and look, there are issues at the moment and there are issues um, that both he and the representative organisations want to address. But my personal view, and I have said this consistently, is that the only way to resolve those issues are by people sitting around the table, by engaging, by negotiating. Uh, and that is the way that this needs to be dealt with. Um, the Garda mm. Commissioner was obviously appointed by government um, and government has reappointed him for the, the remainder of the next two this years. This has the makings um, of a political crisis, though, does it not, Minister? Because if uh, the GRA vote no confidence in uh, the Commissioner, there will be questions asked about his position. It's expected that you, as Minister, will back the Commissioner, and then I would imagine there'll be questions asked about how tenable your position is. Well, look, you know, as I've said, I have confidence in the Commissioner. Um, at the end of the day... If but this but vote, you'll back him against rank-and-file Gardaí, will you? Well, no, what I've what I've said is I support the Commissioner. Um, and what I've also said is the only way to resolve this is by people getting around the table. So whether this vote is concluded, and obviously if there is a, a yes or a no, that doesn't change the fact that the issues that the GRA have raised, be it around rostering or anything else, still can only be resolved by people getting around the table. Um, the Commissioner has consistently said that he is ready and willing to get around the table. Um, but I also engage with members of rank and file Gardaí, and I absolutely understand, particularly when it comes to the roster, how important this is for them, how important it is for their families, their, their work-life balance. And that is why we need to resolve this. There's been a lot of work over the last two or three years to try and resolve this. We're talking about essentially moving away from what is still a COVID roster onto something that is more sustainable. And we can only do that by people getting around the table. So the motion of no confidence doesn't change the fact that the commissioner was hired to do a job. It also doesn't change the fact that rank and file members want to make sure that they have a roster that works for them and for their lives and obviously works for the the police force that they represent as well. Okay, Minister, some other issues uh, in the little time that we have. Uh, The decision to proceed with uh, the North-South Interconnector was taken by the government at a a time you were on maternity leave, but obviously you're a member of uh, that government uh, and uh, party to that uh, decision. Uh, How do you feel about that? 
Look, I think I've always expressed my views on this project and that is first and foremost, the communities need to be listened to and they need to be engaged with. Um, and that is why 10 years later, I suppose we are still at the stage we are at. Um, planning has been agreed uh, and obviously that is a, a process that no elected representative will seek to, to to change. But obviously I had my say in that process at the time. Um, we've had three separate independent reports or reviews all of which um, have come back with the same response, and that is for this particular type of project, type of connections that they're trying to, to develop, this overhead power line is the best way and the only feasible way to do it. Now, you know, I, I am always and have always been of the view that as technology evolves, this is something that we need to continue to look at. Um, but the next steps are there is going to be further engagement with the communities in September, and I would absolutely urge AirGrid to make sure that communities and that landowners okay. and that people but are... Do you, but do you stand by the decision uh, that was made uh, by your cabinet colleagues in your absence? Uh, well, look, I wasn't there, as you've said, but, but the you decision stand was by. taken, and yes, I, I, I do, of course, okay. look, this decision was taken, but uh, as I've said, there have been three independent reports that we as a government have sought because, and personally and my colleagues as well, want to make sure that communities' views are represented. Um, the reports have all come back I would say, unfortunately, in terms of what we are trying to achieve here with the same response and the same um, okay. next steps. But, you know, we, I suppose, have a long way to go still. There's I, a lot think, of I, I think that's the, the truth, if, if ever that was the case. Uh, but um, I, I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to the next step. Uh, and there will be many steps uh, along the way. Can I ask you about the next step for the emergency department? in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, because, again, in your absence, uh, there was an almighty row about this and it seemed imminent uh, that uh, the unit was uh, about to close. Uh, what is the current situation? Well, as of the 14th of December, um, there was a new protocol put in place last year. Um, there was obviously back and forth between uh, the departments in, in Navan and in Drogheda, and this was an agreed protocol, so particularly focused on critical patients um, and certain types of surgical patients um, that they would be transferred directly to Drogheda. Now, obviously, there was a huge amount of work done last year, and I would have spoken to you many times, um, where there was engagement looking at the county as a whole, the surrounding areas, what's required, what's needed to make sure people have the best health services for them. Um, and this is the only change that has happened based on that. It works and seems to be, based on my engagement with not just Navan, but Drogheda, it seems to be working well. Uh, one of the things that would have been highlighted to us last year, particularly from Drogheda, is that they needed more consultants. There have since then been three additional consultants allocated, and there was one, I think, that is, is that the post is being advertised uh, now, if not shortly. So the protocols that are in place are working well, but as you know, the emergency department is still operating and functioning very well and serving the people of this county. As of today, and as I'm speaking to you, I have no further knowledge of any changes to take place, and I think the very fact that we are... I, I dare say it's moving into winter and starting into the uh, flu season and what would be a busy period again. It, it is not the time to even consider any further changes. But my understanding is that there, there are no discussions, no talks for any further changes. Uh, and what is in operation at the moment is actually working very well and I think is serving the people of Mood and Loud and surrounding counties. Is it well. safe? 
I, I believe it is, um, absolutely, and I have not been told otherwise by those who are working on the ground, and they are the people who I have well, always listened well, to. With well, respect, Minister, I think you have. I think you're the lead clinician in the HSE, uh, and uh, the HSE executive have told you it's not safe. I, I We were told that. Uh, we obviously engaged, and we had the process last year. There have been protocols and changes that have been made, and my absolute understanding uh, is that people on both sides, be it from the HSE at a senior level, be it those working in Navan, be it those in Drogheda, are very happy with how the hospitals are operating and how they are working together. Uh, if there are to be any changes, um, I have uh, asked Minister Donnelly that we would engage very early on when the doll resumes in September to discuss this, but my understanding is that there are no um there are no steps to make any further changes at the moment and I have not been informed that there are any concerns or issues uh, that need to be raised at the moment. Okay, uh, Minister, uh, before we conclude, can I ask you uh, about uh, a legal strategy that has been adopted by Christian Brothers? There's been a lot of talk about this strategy here and elsewhere. It's called a, a legal strategy or a loophole in the law. It's quite complicated uh, to explain to people, but I think a lot of people would agree that it's cold, it's callous, and it's calculated a calculated way of protecting the order's bank balance, that is, by obstructing victims of child sexual abuse from getting redress, effectively denying them justice. What are your thoughts on that strategy? Um, so what I won't comment on any one particular group or any one particular case, um, my own personal view is that any organisation, any group that would intentionally form themselves into a legal entity that would prevent people who are entitled to and should absolutely get redress, be it victims of child sexual abuse or any other type of victim or survivor, it is absolutely wrong and should not be the case. Now, I know the Law Reform Commission, um, which is chaired by Frank Clark, is looking at this particular structure and this particular issue at the moment, um, and he will have to make recommendations. While the Law Reform Commission does not fall under my remit, it's under Taoiseach's uh, my understanding is any changes to legislation would potentially be through the Department of Business and Enterprise um, because of what we're talking about here in terms of the legal structures. But I would absolutely support that change. I think any group or organisation that would intentionally change their legal structure to prevent victims from getting redress is absolutely wrong and should not be the case. But look, we, we have to await this report. Um, and depending on the, the recommendations, I will obviously engage with, with my colleagues on this, whether it's at Cabinet or, or otherwise. Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. That's uh, the Minister Michael. for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's a Fine Gael TD for Meath East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you should be aged uh, 21 uh, to buy cigarettes in this country legally. Uh, that's uh, what uh, Fine Gael's spokesperson on health, Colin Burke, wants to be the situation. Good morning to you, Colin Burke. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Morning, Michael. What, what, what is it at the moment? 16? Um, well, it's 18. We're is it 18? At the moment, yeah. And so, what you know, this was a proposal brought forward by the Royal College of Physicians, um, and um, it was brought forward this time last year. What we're saying is basically we've set a target. Um, we've set a target of having the number of people smoking reduced down to 5% by 2025. We're way off that figure. We're really talking about... Um, you know, over 14, 15% of people are smoking. Yeah. Um, so that we need to be far more decisive in relation to dealing with this issue. And um, the evidence is there's a number of studies from the States, for instance, which shows that where 
smoking uh, limit was, you know, when you introduced the restriction to 21, in fact, a lot of people over 18 start smoking. In fact, 49.5% of the people studied in a study done, I think of over 1,200 uh, students or postgrad students, um, over 49.5% didn't start smoking until after 18. So, and in particular, started smoking the, in uh, during the period kind mm. of 18 to 25. Okay. And you see, I think as well in relation to smoking, one of the things that we need to understand is that four and a half thousand people a year die in this country as a direct result of using uh, tobacco products. Mm. That's no joke. Um, yeah. And mm. that's no joke. And mm. I think we mm. need, we have made a lot of progress in fairness in 2004 when, you know, we introduced the ban on smoking in public um, uh, facilities, in pubs. Uh, we, you know, while there was a lot of resistance at the time, it did make a major contribution to reducing the level of smoking. And I think it has, we've, we are getting the benefits of it from a, mm. from the point of view of a health point of view as well. You know? Yeah. Uh, I would imagine, though, that uh, there would be far more people smoking if uh, they weren't vaping. Um, yes, and the, the, the medical results now show in relation to vaping um, that we're also running into uh, difficulties health-wise. It's not as straightforward and it's not as safe as what was originally made out to be. Now, there's a huge variation in the vaping products available. We're talking about bringing in legislation to deal with that. Um, and I think we also need now to look at this issue. You know, the Public Health Tobacco and Nicotine Inhaling Products Bill mm. is currently going through the legislative process. So there's um, there's a lot of work being done, but we need to consider this issue as well as regards reducing down, uh, or sorry, increasing the the age limit in which cigarettes can be purchased up to 21. I know a lot of people will be totally posted. It's interesting, actually, in the journal that I did a survey yesterday, and over uh, 11,000 people voted and over 75% were in favour of the vote, right. which I was really surprised at. Mm, I didn't say that. That's very interesting and mm. uh, very surprising. Uh, it's a huge majority uh, and you'd have to take it that everybody, well, it was, everybody uh, who doesn't smoke in the country would welcome the idea of it being for well, people over 21. 21 yeah. It was 21% mm. people said uh, 21% of people said uh, no, they weren't in favour. 75% said they were and 4% didn't have an opinion. Mm, okay. Well, and it was over. It was a vote of over eleven thousand people. Mm. Well, I, I, I don't see any reason why anybody would argue against the age being twenty-one or twenty-five or a hundred and five. Nobody should uh, take up smoking. I mean, that would be in uh, the best interest of everybody because of uh, the health concerns. Yeah, it's actually interesting. In New Zealand, they've introduced now. In New Zealand, they've yeah. introduced. Uh, legislation whereby anyone born after a certain date uh, cannot purchase cigarettes. So by 2027, it keeps going up uh, every year um, after 2027. So in fact, if you're born, I think the date is 2009. So um, if you're born after the 1st of January 2009, you cannot at any time in your lifetime buy cigarettes. Okay, so when you're in your 40s in 2050, you won't be able to buy uh, cigarettes uh, because you'll be too young, so to speak, which is a fantastic law. Uh, and nobody yeah. will worry about it because they never smoked, if that's the case. Uh, are, are you concerned uh, or as concerned about vaping as cigarettes? Uh, because you said there's um, a, a lot of health concerns about vaping, but the jury is out, as we keep hearing, and we've been hearing for years. But if I could just ask you if we're having the right conversation about vaping, because, uh, I mean, there's uh, one obvious 
huge health concern about vaping and that is uh, we're licensing products uh, which are designed to put people into a life of addiction. Absolutely and I think you know one of the problems that there is as well is that there is such a variation of products that are making it attractive for younger people you know the different flavours etc um, and it's making it attractive and it is addictive and basically we need to control it more and that's what the new legislation will do um, so it's important that we get that legislation through hopefully before Christmas of this year and we can start implementing the regulations on it um, you know it is uh, and, and the other issue that is clearly identifying, even though where people started vaping, a lot of people who started vaping didn't intend smoke, are ending up smoking. So that's the reason why we need mm. to have, well, but there is more research needs to be done to in relation to the adverse effects of vaping, but there is some indications at the moment that it's not um, all that it's held out to be as regards, yes, it's helpful as regards moving away people from from smoking who are addicted to cigarettes, but it's also attracting people back into uh, who who didn't attend smoking. Mm. Well, that's the addiction, addiction, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you you need your nicotine fix and somebody else is smoking and you take a drag or you take a smoke or whatever it is and you end up on cigarettes uh, because, I don't know, but I think the cigarette companies have been uh, as imaginative and as clever as they were in the days of Humphrey Bogart when it was cool to smoke uh, or Betty Davis when it was glamorous to smoke. Uh, And now it's uh, whatever words uh, the young people use uh, to uh, say it's a great thing to be vaping, uh, whether it's cool or whatever words they use these days. But it's the tobacco industry which is selling addictive products and we're allowing it. In fact, we're licensing it and so on. Would you like to see further uh, clampdowns on uh, the usage of uh, these products, whether it's cigarettes or vapes? Uh, You wanted to go to 21 for cigarettes. Uh, Should it be 21 for vapes? Uh, Should there be ban on smoking or vaping in beer gardens? gardens and, and that type of thing or in public parks I think has been another suggestion or would you go further at all? Well I would say that the you know what we need to do is reduce down the number of people smoking as a start I think we need you know the target is 5% by 2025 we're off that we now need you know in 2004 it was fairly dramatic what was introduced at a time people said it would never happen it would never work um, it did work we now need to be very much proactive now that's why i'm saying that we now need to have this debate we need to take decisions which will can contribute to reaching that target of reducing them and also i think we also need to provide support for people who are addicted because in fairness to people you know they didn't intend to become addicted to cigarettes or to vaping we need to be more proactive as well as regards how can we assist them in moving away from either vaping or smoking so that they're not putting their health at risk. And I think that's the big issue that we need to sell is that once you smoke, you're putting your health at risk. You may also be putting other people's health at risk, in particular if you smoke inside your own house where there are other members of the family. And, you know, I think that also needs to be to be highlighted. It's amazing that sometimes you still can call to places where it's clearly evident that smoking takes place within the house where there are young families. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us today. That's Fine Gael, TD, Colin Burke, who's his party spokesperson on health. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. We bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, somebody texting in during uh, the interview with Minister McEntee saying the Minister wasn't able for the questions, just saying what uh, suited uh, it seemed uh, to our listener. I'm not sure why that was the case. Betty Daly said they want to lower the age of voters to 16. Uh, if they do that, then they should also judge hoodlums to be men, uh, hail them as men. Instead of letting them away with murder and deny them free legal aid after three strikes, let the lovely mammies raise the costs of their defence for them, says Betty. Thank you, Betty. As always, somebody else in touch saying I was born and reared in Navin. I can tell you I wouldn't go out at night unless I got a, a taxi from door to door. You talk about Dublin and tourists, but we are the people paying taxes in all of the towns in Ireland and deserve better. This government has allowed Ireland to become lawless for years. It it didn't happen overnight and uh, there are no examples when it comes to breaking rules over COVID. Uh, I'm 78 years of age and I've seen a lot of changes but the last 20 years have been a free for all says our listener. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Sean in touch saying that instead of being born with a silver spoon if Miss McEntee was born in inner Dublin, she would now be down in Moore Street selling illegal cigarettes. I was not born with a silver spoon, but if I was born in inner Dublin, I would be out mugging and robbing tourists. Nothing else to do. The whole area has been neglected over many years and the government have uh, themselves created the ghettos. Thanks indeed, Sean. Perception or reality? I'll leave that to you to decide. I would say, Sean, with respect... That's a perception and it's a misguided perception. I do not believe for a second that everybody born in inner city Dublin would be out mugging and robbing tourists or doing any of the other things like selling illegal cigarettes uh, that you mentioned. And I say that uh, as somebody uh, who (laughs) comes from inner city Dublin. Um, uh, Incidentally, uh, on uh, crime, uh, if you believe that it has uh, law and order is broken down and crime is out of control, uh, you're in the minority. A brand new survey just released uh, and has been given to me today from Angarda Shiakana. The majority of people say local crime is not a serious problem. 63% of people have no fears or very few fears about crime. 60% say that uh, fear of crime has no impact on them. 81% of people say local crime is not a serious problem. 20% uh, increase uh, from 2018 in the number of people who say the organisation on Garda Shia is well managed. 68% say it is. 75% of people are satisfied with the Garda. 90% of people trust the Garda. 90% agree that you should treat Garda with respect. 90% of young people trust Garda. 86% say they would be treated with respect by Gardaí. Very interesting statistics. That survey, as I say, just released uh, hot off the presses and I'm sure you'll be hearing much more about it uh, across the day today as well. More detail, that is. Now, let me come uh, to some uh, more of uh, the comments that we didn't get to on the programme yesterday. We, we ran out of time. There were so many comments uh, and we've made space for them today. Margaret was in touch and she says, Rip Off Ireland is alive and well and it will continue unless the bodies in charge are given proper laws to use against these entities. The overcharging on the PSO levy on electricity is being paid back. Just 
check the bill and it shows credit for it. It should never have been taken in the first place. Where was the oversight for it? Too many mistakes being made by big entities and no one to pick up on it straight away. It can take years for these wrongs to come to light. It's not good enough. Look at the interest rates here. We bailed out and are still bailing out the banks and the people with mortgages are still paying to bail them out as well as paying high interest rates. A double whammy for some of them. Some people call it light touch regulation. I'd call it bad regulation because far too much has happened in this country where no lessons have been learned and it is the same people who pay the price for all of the wrongdoings. James Indrada says he's switched to a nighttime ready for his washing machine, dishwasher and tumble dryer. On, 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 he was under the impression that he'd be saving electricity by doing nighttime washes and saving the power supply during the day for industrial use. Uh, he wasn't informed that day units would end up being more expensive. Uh, and uh, they get you whichever way you turn, says James. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, with somebody else uh, in touch uh, about uh, Jim Roach of uh, the Irish anti-war movement uh, saying I love your show but would you please stop bringing on clowns uh, complaining about US force displays there's always someone looking for attention the US didn't start the war has he anything to say about Putin well I think Jim Roach has an awful lot to say about Putin and would be very very critical of Putin there is no doubt uh, let's go back uh, to uh, the costs of electricity Jimmy Gallagher was in touch with us and he said in an email that some of the prepay energy companies are already the most expensive, especially when their additional standing charges are factored in. So be very careful before you switch. And indeed, he looked up the standing charges and I think the lowest is Energia at €237. The highest is prepay power at €534. Some difference between the two. Thanks indeed for that. Um, We'd Paddy Duffy in touch with us uh, about uh, the coverage of uh, Damien O'Farrell and uh, the victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of Christian Brothers. Uh, Paddy said the coverage was public service broadcasting at its best. Thank you very much indeed. Somebody wanted to send a message to Damien saying, please hug Damien. No, Damien, you haven't let me down. It's disgraceful. We've no leadership in those uh, that we elected and entrusted to make decisive decisions. PJ then texted saying, surely if you interfere with the carriage of justice, there's something wrong. How can this be within the law? Uh, it's uh, almost uh, as bad as covering up a, uh, an evil crime, uh, says PJ, who feels that the strategy is legal. It's legal, but it's sound. But you heard the minister this morning say it's absolutely wrong. Uh, and uh, she would very much support that loophole being shored up in the law. We'd Anne in touch with us yesterday as well. She says she doesn't understand why the councillors in Drogheda are dragging their feet and doing what the victims want. It's obvious that this man should never have been awarded the freedom of the city to begin with. So what's the big hullabaloo with taking it away from him? Uh, I think some people would uh, disagree with that, Anne, in that uh, the award was given in 19. 19- 97. The strategy was introduced in 2017. It's a dreadful thing to do on people who were sexually abused and raped as little boys, but that's what the Christian brothers are doing. That's the strategy that Brother Edmund Garvey decided 
chose to adopt, introduce and oversee. And that's why the victims are asking Drogheda to stop honouring somebody who is intentionally and knowingly obstructing victims of child sexual abuse from gaining redress, from gaining justice, effectively denying them justice. Uh, we'd uh, Claire in touch with us uh, as well. Claire says her energy bills are the single biggest worry every couple of months. It's impossible to guesstimate what it'll be each time just when she thinks she's on top of it uh, and that she's budgeted accordingly. It goes up again. And she's behind again. And she says she's chatted to her family. She's chatted to her friends about all of this. And she's not the only one who has this problem. Government need to do more to help people with the financial burden. Uh, we'd uh, Olivia in touch with us. Another email. Uh, your continued support and coverage for the survivors of sexual abuse at the hands of Christian Brothers is wonderful. Listening to your program this morning. Why am I not surprised to hear once again of these so-called chairpersons. They cause nothing only further damage by endless stress for survivors. Delighted you exposed this. Thank you indeed, Olivia. Uh, and uh, Olivia says, keep the pressure on councillors. Uh, and uh, Olivia, I think, knows a thing or two about assault and uh, the long road to seeking justice and finally getting there in Olivia's case. Thank you. Your email was very much appreciated. If you want to comment on the programme today, our phone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some more comments. Mary in touch with us. Uh, Mary thinks Helen McEntee is facing a lot of unfair criticism over the rising crime levels. She can't be held responsible for everything that goes wrong in society. And Mary says, to be honest, she doesn't see how anyone else in that position could do any better. Of course, we need... Uh, to better resource the Gardaí and give them whatever support is needed uh, for them to be able to do their jobs. But even if we throw all of the money in the world at the force, there will always be people who will commit crimes and who will break laws. The guards can't be everywhere. Seamus in touch with us uh, this morning after the interview with uh, the Minister. Seamus says we could have thousands of guards patrolling the streets on a daily basis and we would still see high levels of crimes. The people committing these crimes and assaults have no fear of the law and they have no fear of repercussions. The punishments and jail terms for people found guilty of such crimes needs to be tougher so that there is a greater chance of scaring them back onto the straight and narrow. Thank you very much uh, Seamus and Mary for your calls. Our phone number is 041983 text or WhatsApp 086 1800 email michael at lmfm.ie Now one parent Families are under severe pressure. Uh, That would seem uh, to uh, be evident in the number of calls uh, that are being received uh, by One Family, uh, the organisation that works with One Family. It's just published its annual report and it has seen an increase in calls of 15% or more like uh, 30% uh, for the first quarter of this year. Let's speak uh, to Karen Kiernan, who is uh, the CEO of One Family. And a very good morning to you, Karen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Programme this morning. What is it uh, that lone parents are calling you about? Well, they're calling the national helpline um, about lots of different things: parenting, uh, separating, homelessness, um, family law issues, going to court. But actually, the biggest 
amount of calls that we got last year and, and generally we get is around social welfare issues because parents find it very difficult and um, those who rely on social welfare find it very difficult to navigate and understand um, what's happening and how what they get may interact with them wanting to maybe go to education or go back to work. Um, so it can be quite confusing and also many, many parents for a very long time really have been struggling to keep their heads above water. Mm. And with all the inflationary costs, the cost of living, things have been really tough. Am I, um, am I right? Many, in thinking, I'm sorry, Karen. Am I right in thinking that there's a, a lot of long parents who are on social wear, welfare because it, it doesn't pay them to work? Well, a, a lot of people, a lot of parents actually are working and they're they're on less money than right. if they were solely on social welfare. But they want to make um, positive changes and develop a career, so it is quite problematic. Um, sometimes there's a fear of losing something like a medical card. Let's say someone has a child with additional needs yep. um, and they may lose their medical card if they um, go to work or they may be reassessed for it. That's a huge fear and that's a huge risk for a family to take. Okay. So sometimes if things were done differently, people could work more easily. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, but I would have thought with one income in uh, the family, the cost of childcare is prohibitive. Oh, it's huge. If you think any family, the big costs in Ireland are accommodation and childcare, both of which are incredibly expensive. So if you're trying to do that on one income, it's really, it's almost impossible, actually. Yeah. So unless someone is in a very, very high earning job. So what, what we have seen with lone parents we work with who are moving back into education and, and work is that they need kind of tapered support. They need to have some level of security so that they're able to still provide for their family while they're taking those steps to get back into the workforce or to uh, get a, a degree so that they can get a, a better earning job. Um, and these things are all doable. There's a lot of things the government could do here that mm. aren't very expensive, but that would help give families the kind of security and throw them a lifeline mm. so that they're able to get out of the, the, the constant financial struggle that many lone parents face in Ireland at the moment. Okay, uh, and in part caused by there being one income for the family, I think you highlight in your annual report how the government uh, could address that at no confidence because there might be one income in the family, but quite often there's two parents. Uh, and quite often, again, uh, there's one of the parents who isn't paying maintenance. Yeah, this is a perennial issue, unfortunately. And many parents who are the liable relative often. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The tags, but not always the dads, are really good at paying maintenance. They have an ongoing relationship with their children, but many, many do not. And people are forced to go to court to try and get maintenance. There could be agreements eventually put in place, but it doesn't mean that they're stuck to. So it's an absolute nightmare because people's income, parents' income go up and down. It may mean from week to week there's less available for their children. They have real uncertainty. It's very stressful. We know that going to court can take a very, very long time. They can be very rushed proceedings. And there's no kind of standard way of dealing with maintenance and enforcing maintenance orders in Ireland. It's, it's, it's really unsatisfactory. So we have been calling for some kind of state system to both assess what should be paid um, based on what the children need and what the parents have available to them and also in a, a way of enforcing those payments. And this really is about child poverty and trying to alleviate the higher, high levels of child poverty in one parent family. Of course, yeah. Uh, and um, can I ask you, I mean, I'm sure there's a million and one uh, reasons why people don't pay maintenance uh, and uh, I would take it that uh, for the most part it's men. But generally speaking, would you say that men are leaving their children in poverty uh, because they don't care about their children or is it uh, foolhardy of them uh, uh, as some way that they think is punishing their ex-partner? Yeah, I mean, we, we work with families who are separating and we work with families who are in conflict who are separating. So what we see is that for those, the minority of parents who don't pay child maintenance, it, it often can be uh, an emotional response to the separation and a way perhaps of seeing that the other parents may not spend the money the way they think they should. It, I mean, nobody wants to harm their children. Everybody thinks what they're doing is in their children's best interest. So, you know, I, I think it really is a kind of an, a, an emotional response um, that isn't fully unpicked in terms of the, um, the impact it'll have on children. And then, you know, not paying child maintenance is also considered financial abuse. So it, it can also be part of a pattern of an abusive relationship or where there's coercive control mm. so there can be many reasons why somebody may yeah. not pay maintenance but it's and one of some those people terrible... may not have it yeah well well that's a different thing but it is one of those terrible things on occasion at least where the child gets caught in the middle oh totally yeah. and we have a lot of experience in working with families who are in conflict where children may be used in the middle and you know part of our mm. job in one family is helping people figure out how to communicate well with yeah. each other as adults and as parents yeah. And doing the best for the uh, And it's, it's so unadvisable because uh, you're talking about parents who are scarring their children for life uh, uh, in some circumstances. Uh, you've done quite a, a lot to help uh, children, it would seem, uh, particularly over Christmas time uh, because of the generosity of others. Uh, one family has been able to help many families and children for that matter. Yeah, we started doing this during COVID was actually giving... Um, 
direct kind of food vouchers to families who were really struggling, who who couldn't, didn't have enough money to feed their their, their children and themselves. And then every Christmas um, we uh, collect toys from companies and individuals and are able to distribute them to help with Santa. So that's always a nice thing to be able to do. But we have definitely noticed the need going up, that there's just less income around for the families that we work with um, and that people are struggling more. And so budget last year really did very little for one parent family. So we're really calling on government to make sure that Budget 24 is a child-friendly budget, that it really targets those children, those over 100,000 children who are living in child poverty, many of whom are living in one parent families. And there's a way of targeting those instead of giving you know, increases in child benefit to everybody or giving energy credits to everybody. Can we target those children and parents who need help the most and, and help lift them out of the struggle and the poverty that they're in at the moment. Okay, uh, you say it's not just social welfare that uh, people call you about uh, and it's not the only reason why there's been this surge of 15% over the course of a year or 30% uh, when you compare uh, this quarter with uh, last year's uh, but people are in touch about all sorts of things energy uh, and food uh, obviously uh, top of the list lone parents uh, I think have been impacted most uh, uh, of all by uh, the increase in the cost of living and uh, the soaring inflation that has hurt us all uh, but do you get a lot of calls from people who have to decide whether to eat or heat yeah, well, it's one of those invidious choices, and I suppose people are really struggling. Um, and what we hear from parents is that you know they're trying to weigh up very narrow options and see are there any other supports that they can get to keep themselves going. And for many people, having a roof over their family's heads is the single most important thing they can they can achieve. You know, so um, it may be that people are slipping into debt and are really struggling to pay other bills because the immediate thing is to make sure that you have somewhere safe to live um, and that you and your children have enough to eat. And I suppose we see this is also a difficulty with holiday hunger when schools, early years, services, youth clubs are closed. There's additional expenses for families. We saw this during COVID. So it can be a real struggle. And people have very, very difficult choices to make. And the research is showing that one-parent families, unfortunately, were much more highly impacted by COVID, by cost of living. And so they do need targeted support now so that mm. they can have a life with dignity and that we don't leave those children behind. Because poverty really scars children and can have a very long-lasting effect on them. So we need government to help build those pathways and support for people who are on low incomes or are on social welfare to be able to move forward in their lives. And childcare, accommodation, um, the cost of living, they're kind of the basic things that people are struggling with. Okay, no doubt uh, you'll be asking the government to address some, if not all, of those issues through the upcoming budget. Uh, people can get more uh, information uh, about uh, all of your services from onefamily.ie. But just to mention as well that you offer counselling and parental training uh, and that there is a helpline which is 0818 But as I say, onefamily.ie, probably the handiest portal of call for most people listening to us uh, this morning. Karen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. 
Karen Kiernan is uh, the CEO of One Family. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's uh, go to Clonalvi where Catherine Campbell is on the line. A very good morning to you, Catherine. Thanks uh, for joining us all now the programme. Uh, you've got a, a bit of a problem. Uh, it's a problem that a, a lot of people experience around this time every year, which comes as no comfort to you whatsoever. But you don't know how you're going to get your twins to and from school because of problems with uh, the school bus. Tell us about your situation, if you would, please. Um, hi, Michael. Uh, basically, on Friday, uh, I received an email from Bus Erin to say that due to a number of difficulties in some locations, uh, my boys' bus service was affected. Um, this bus service has been provided at least 10 years from starting to Nalvi, and it would go to the other villages down the Dalik Road and to Drogheda. Um, there's about 20 or so families, probably more than that, actually affected by this. Um, but when I rang Bus Aaron, um, I couldn't get through to them, so I requested a callback. And uh, the person I, re- the team member from the bus transport, um, was the kind of vague with regard to um, what was going on. So I posed a few questions where I. They basically said what could have happened with our service was that uh, the previous um, the previous company we were with had to renew their tender. There were tenders every five years, mm. and um, they didn't win the tender. Um, it, they were obviously undercut by another provider, but um, they were advised probably on Friday that the other provider did not have a bus driver available for the route. Right, okay. So they gave the tender to a company who can't provide the service. Correct. Okay. Um, now, I, I posed the question. I said, okay, so um, what do you envisage would be the ETA in getting this resolved? And uh, they told me that it could be the end of September or the beginning of October. Oh, God. Um, right. I but what about the original advised- provider? Or, uh, that was Mullins, was it? It was. Yeah. And, Drogheda, um, and you were very happy with that service. Yes. We, we've we had them for five years. And now, my, my boys didn't have them for five years. It was yeah. their first year last year. Previously, my older son, who's 10 years older than the uh, the twins, um, he had that bus that was provided by bus Aaron during the trip to Clonalvi. And there were no issues there. But Mullins have always been spot on. Uh, their, their drivers are fantastic with the children. Mm. The children are happy with them. And, and that is a big issue, especially when you've got 12 and 13-year-olds going from a, a little village to a big town, yeah. you know, for the first time. Um, but they've never let us down. Mm. They've just been absolutely fantastic. So uh, I rang Mullen. Okay, good. You preempted my question. Yeah. yeah, yeah, tell us. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I was talking to the owner of the company and I, I just said, look, um, with regard to our bus route, um, it's, it looks like you didn't win the tender. He said he actually still has a driver available for the route yeah. and um, that if Bus Aaron were to contact them, that they can still provide the service. Mm. So um, that, that I advised the Bus Aaron team member um, at the time on the phone call, but as they said, they couldn't really answer my questions or, or make a statement on what I was saying. Mm. That's a bit weird, isn't it? 
It is. Um, uh, we we got a statement. We contacted Bus Air and ourselves, and we got a statement similar to the one that you got. Uh, and vague, I think, is a, a very pragmatic way of putting it. Uh, I think it's probably being sent to all parents uh, who have a problem with bus services in every corner of the country. Uh, but it does seem a bit weird that the bus company was providing the service that you were very happy with last year and for years before that uh, are happy to take up the route again and have a a driver available but they gave the tender to a company that doesn't have a a driver to drive the bus. You'll you'll probably find that what happened was and and this like it happens in all businesses Mm. that you will have a company that is trying to of course to win new routes and what they're doing is is they're putting a tender in for they, they could have 10 drivers and they're putting a tender in for, say, 15 routes mm. to see which ones that they actually win. And then they'll go for the more lucrative ones. Right. Um, I I did hear that there is a shortage of drivers in certain companies. Um, mm. I mean, Oh, it's a nationwide a problem, like that, apparently, yes. Yeah. Uh, and they're talking about bringing back uh, people over 70 and trying to find drivers in whatever way they can. But there is no doubt that that is a, a problem. But uh, when you look at it as closely as you have on your particular route, uh, and how? What did you say? Twenty families have uh, been discommoded by this. It just seems terribly weird. I, I, yeah. That that would be a, all. I know is just that the bus is full, mm. um, because of course um, I have fourteen-year-olds who are sometimes not on the planet, um, so <laughs> they're they're more into what they're okay. doing on the bus than yeah. what anybody else no, is. Of course, yeah. Um, mm. Yes, and mm. um, this bus is also a connector bus to. There's there are children in Clonalvi who mm. are actually going to a school on the other side of Drogheda. So they have they get this bus and when they reach Drogheda they have to get onto another bus to get to their school. Right. So okay. mm. you know it, that also affects mm. them and the problem is and, and I, I find that this seems to be kind of generic with an awful lot of things that have government contracts is that when these decisions are made they're, they're not really in the real world. Mm. Um, we also have the issue of a concessionary ticket and the reason why my sons have a concessionary ticket is because there is a school deemed nearer to them than the school that they actually were able to go to I had applied to all of these schools for um, the twins but the only one that they could actually go to was the one that their brother had been in previously um, who started 10 years before them and it's because when you are a rural community and you're basically trying to um so when you're a rural community you don't have um a secondary school in your area you will you may have a primary school and these primary schools are feeders to other schools but the other schools will take children on the basis of, first of all, if their parents were in that school mm-hmm. or if their siblings are in that school yeah. or if they're in a feeder school connected to that school and then the last place, you're a lottery. So we could only get our school in Drogheda and we're, we're being penalised for that if there ever is an issue where the bus is full because it's deemed not to be the nearest school to us. And I right. think that is mm. an antiquated rule that needs to be adjusted in line with what's actually really happening in schools. Well, I can't argue with you on that, um, but uh, the situation remains the same. 
what are you going to do? It sounds uh, as though if a bus errand called Mullins, this could be solved overnight because uh, they have a yeah. bus and a driver uh, who could solve the problem. But you're working, your other half is working, uh, the other boy yeah. who's 10 years older than the twins is going to college. I think you have to get him in and out at yeah, my, times. My daughter is uh, to college. My, my oh, son is working okay. in Dublin. Um, so, yes. Right. Uh, but no bus it's for the twins. Convoluted. No bus for the twins. So, what and, are you going to do? Previously, um, well, uh, at the moment, it's going to be have to be myself. Um, I'll have to have a conversation with my boss with regard to not being in work 50% of the time because that's what we have in work now due to all of the new COVID hmm. um, rules and working from home. And that I'll have to basically work my lunchtime so that I can go and pick them up in the evening at half three from school. Um, so it's workarounds on my part, which, you know, you can imagine delay. It, it can be very um, hard when you're working full time yourself. Um, but I, I know I'm not the only person affected by this mm. because a few of the other mothers who I would see in the morning when I'd be dropping the boys down to their bus and yeah. um, they are in the same situation and yeah. you see I, I think there's this kind of belief in some ways and it's, it's probably it's my opinion I'm, I'm maybe not everybody thinks the same way but when people think of rural communities they think that there's at least one parent not working mm. um, at all whereas in this day and age especially with the cost of living effects on everybody and everything gone up by nearly 100% in cost. Um, both parents have to work. Mm. Yeah, I don't know many who can afford it. I don't know any, actually, who can afford not to. Uh, but it, yeah. in the meantime, the service is not available uh, and you're going to be driving around the country uh, five days a week. You'll be knackered apart from anything else. That's if your job allows it. Yes. Yeah. And, mm. and I, if you actually think about it, I mean... I, I don't know what the difference in tender was and mm. whether it was a sizable amount or not. If they just looked at the number and went for the one that was the lowest and the next one could have just been a like hundred or so more. I mean, if you divide that by the amount of children, you're, you're actually looking at the fact that now there is no bus provided for this service. You're going to have at least 20 families driving to school to and adding to congestion, mm. increasing their carbon footprint mm -hmm. and all of those other factors. And of course, I mean, it's also going to be an additional expense to the parents because they now have extra mileage to do and extra things to juggle for which we did take it for granted that we had a very reliable service that we could count on and now we don't. Okay, Catherine, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, I think we'll uh, get back to Bus Air and ask them uh, if uh, they've called Mullins yet or if they're intending to do that. But thanks, as I say, for joining us uh, this morning. Catherine Campbell there. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, I just want to go back briefly, if I can, to yesterday's uh, programme. Uh, we were speaking to Damien O'Farrell. Uh, if uh, you've been listening to this programme at all over the last number of weeks, you'll know who Damien O'Farrell is and that uh, he represents 
victims of child sexual abuse at uh, the hands of uh, the Christian Brothers. Uh, you heard the minister this morning talk uh, about an appalling legal strategy that the Christian Brothers have adopted, uh, which she wants to see shored up, uh, a loophole shored up, uh, because it's allowing the brothers to obstruct the victims from gaining justice, delaying that uh, by obstructing their access to redress. Uh, and Damien and uh, the people he represents have been asking for the freedom of Drogheda to be rescinded from Brother Edmund Garvey because it's Brother Edmund Garvey who introduced uh, this strategy uh, and oversaw the use of uh, the strategy since 2017. He's been asking for a, a lot of support locally. Uh, and we'll just hear a little bit of what Damien had to say on the programme yesterday now. Reparation, that's what we want. Your chairperson over the weekend said that the, the litigation strategy was oppressive and damaging. Well, why haven't you supported us? I was speaking to another great lady a few weeks ago, and I think she might be on her hall. I don't know where she is now. Great Grace McArdle. She's fantastic. Why isn't she on here? Why isn't she on here talking and supporting us? Why aren't you supporting us? I think you need to look at yourselves, the Board of Rape Crisis Centre in North East. You need to look with inside your hearts and see how you've let us down over these months, how you've let us down. And you need to come on here. You need to let Grace come on here and talk to us and talk to us and talk to the councillors and talk to the people of Drada. I'm not just to say... The victims are begging you, begging the people of Trotter to help them. Begging. Those words fell on deaf ears. That's uh, Damien O'Farrell begging uh, the rape crisis northeast to allow Grace McArdle to come on to the programme uh, to share her thoughts on what Damien is hoping to achieve. I spoke to Grace McArdle yesterday uh, and invited her onto the programme. Uh, Grace McArdle, uh, the manager of uh, the Rape Crisis North East, told me that um, she can't agree to an interview, that a request for an interview would have to go to the chairperson of uh, the Rape Crisis North East, and that is Michelle Hall. Uh, Michelle Hall, the same person who is a Labour Party councillor. I contacted uh, Michelle Hall, uh, and Michelle Hall told me that I would be responded to by the secretary of uh, the Rape Crisis North East by email. I received an email uh, from Catherine O'Connor on behalf of the Rape Crisis North East who said, uh, thank you for contacting our chairperson and uh, your request to the chair will be discussed at our board meeting next week. Uh, But that will obviously be after the event and... Uh, the, uh, it doesn't say no, but it doesn't say yes, which is uh, saying no. Uh, and uh, there is a statement that follows which says this is a matter for the councillors. Uh, very sorry to hear that. Uh, I'm going to play a- another clip uh, from Damien O'Farrell uh, uh, speaking on the programme yesterday uh, because uh, there's been a development with uh, this particular issue. This is to do with uh, a local newspaper in the town, the Drogheda Leader. We were looking to take out an ad. Because of that... Um Article because of that email that the former chair sent, we were looking out. We were looking to take an ad out in the Drogheda Leader this week to correct the misinformation. It was going to cost us eight hundred euro. Now I don't know; they haven't got back to us. I'm sure it is going to be on Wednesday, but I'm, I'm not sure yet whether it is or not. But hopefully it will. And look, we're just looking for support. It's this is a simple thing. Eight hundred euros a, a lot of money for an ad. I would have thought in a, a local newspaper. Uh, I'm sure the Drogheda Leader thinks that, but the Drogheda Leader, in its wisdom, has told Damien uh, O'Farrell that they will not run the ad.
Uh, we contacted the Drada leader uh, and asked why is the ad not uh, going to run? On what basis have the managing directors decided that they won't take the ad? Um, we were told that it's a legal issue. They won't be making comments. No comment is order of the day, it would seem, um, uh, from many circles in relation uh, to this particular story. And in many ways, uh, Damien has been met with a brick wall uh, in trying to have his story and uh, the story of uh, the people he represents heard. Let's speak to Jackie Taff now. Jackie is a client of Dignity for Patients and herself a therapist. Uh, she's come in to us uh, this morning. I'm delighted that you have, Jackie. Thanks for coming in uh, because you've been texting us uh, consistently since uh, Damien started speaking to us uh, on the programme. Uh, and you've obviously got very strong feelings uh, about all of this uh, as somebody who attended Dignity for Patients uh, yourself. Uh, how do you feel uh, about the way uh, Damien and uh, the people who represent are being received in the town of Drogheda. Oh, I'm so sad. I'm so sad, Michael. I'm so sad that um, I'm here with you today in, in these circumstances to have this conversation instead of us talking about Drogheda being a flagship town for people who have been sexually abused as children. Mm. A town that doesn't tolerate those who perpetrate sexual abuse on children and a town that doesn't tolerate any individual that would adopt a legal strategy to obstruct survivors or victims of child sexual abuse from gaining justice. Mm. And that is something that I said in the Bond Valley Hotel in April when Damien's group, I had the pleasure to meet some of them men, gentlemen, and um, we had one representative from Drogheda who came that day and then there was a number from Dundalk area, so forgive me if I don't know their names offhand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expressed that view that this is now an opportunity to put uh, right the wrong because at the time in 1997 when um, Brother Edmund Garvey was awarded or bestowed this honour and it is an honour, in my view, to be given the freedom of Drogheda um, because that tells me that that reflects integrity, compassion, understanding and a love of the town itself. And that was given, I suppose, in good faith at the time, even though in his speech, in that uh, article that was published on, on the celebration of, of that um, honour being given to him, he did mention that um, the wrongs that had been done to these children at the hands of some of the Christian brothers, right? So there was an acknowledgement back in 1997. Mm. But we gave it to him. And But as you said earlier, I was listening to you on my way in. Um, he, for whatever reason, and I I can't get into the man's head, he made a decision in 2017 to adopt this legal strategy, which um, nobody's in disagreement with, is um, an obscene, um, abhorrent decision to prevent people who have been raped, sexually abused, children. These are children 
we're talking about. They might be adults now. These are children. You know, imagine a child being raped and imagine defending a decision that will have struck that child in adulthood gaining justice. Mm. And I'm heartbroken about it. Mm. And um, Are you surprised by the Rape Crisis Centre North East? Um, that they've declined to put a, a spokesperson forward and have said that this is a matter for the councillors. I'm a client of the Rape Crisis Centre. I am disgusted. Um, the Board of Management need to reflect. They need to sit down, go home in the safety of their own homes and reflect as individuals on the decisions that's been made at the minute. This is a matter of conscience. Um, unfortunately, uh, when I had the pleasure of meeting Damien last year, and I, I only met him through listening to you and your great programme, and you, who is an utter beacon of light, of pushing this issue, um, when I reached out to Damien just to say how inspiring he was and, and that the group of men he was um, representing were inspiring, Damien reached back out to me and... Um, I'd hoped at that point, even yeah. though in my heart at times, you do get the sense when, when you step out and, and you say this happens, you know, to you, which yeah. in my case it took nearly 40 years. Um, you often get the sense that maybe oh, I don't really belong yeah. and I'm making people uncomfortable. But I, I'd have thought at that stage that as time moved on for, for Damien and the meeting and the boys, we, we would, we'd have made some progress. Yeah. But the silence. Well, what do you think is going on with the rape crisis northeast? Uh, I mean, why is the rape crisis northeast silent uh, on this issue? I mean, I think uh, we've heard uh, from uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. We've heard uh, from uh, the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland, uh, not necessarily on this show, but uh, elsewhere they've issued statements. Uh, we've heard from one in four um, and, you know, I th don't think Nolene Blackwell took a position on whether the thing should be rescinded or not, but she was very happy to talk about it and what people were feeling uh, and the strategy I itself. Uh, I thought it was peculiar uh, that Grace McArdle told me to go to uh, Michelle Hall, given that Michelle Hall is one of the 10 councillors who's going to vote on this. And Michelle Hall said that I I'd get a response by email from the secretary, which has said they're not talking about it. Why is that, do you think? I can't, and I won't, and I couldn't anyway, get into the mindset of the board of Dundalk Rape Crisis Centre North East. I, I, I can't get into that. What I can say for the staff, mm. the councillors there that I've dealt with, they're outstanding. So the board of the Rape Crisis Centre, I would suggest that they sit and reflect on what's happening. Can you understand why a local newspaper won't run an ad? Why a local newspaper would refuse 800 euro? Well, the silence is deafening. The stonewalling is frightening. What is happening? What is going on? The noise around this. We need to strip away the noise. We need to strip away any weaponization of the fact that a child is sexually abused. This is not a political football. This is a set of survivors 
all survivors in the world, by the way. You know, the, this group just doesn't speak for the Christian brothers. When I hear them speak, they speak for me. They speak for people I'm in contact with in London. They speak to people in Australia who have been abused as well, that, I t- that have reached out to me through the, the book that I wrote. And we need to sit back now and to try and put right what, what's, what has gone awfully what's right? wrong. What's right? I mean, in Drogheda, what's right is protecting Drogheda, is it not? And protecting Drogheda's own. And is that not always the way it was? I mean, didn't the victims of Michael Shine have to fight to be heard because officialdom in Drogheda ignored them, told them to go away? Uh, we heard not too long ago about one victim going to the guardie who was told he'd be prosecuted if he didn't take away the accusation that Michael Shine was a paedophile. Uh, it was the same with Michael Neary. People were castigated. It was the same with symphysiotomy. Uh, the uh, women were called all sorts of, of names, money grabbers uh, and all this sort of thing. Drogheda looks after its own and Drogheda thinks it has a great op- reputation and it doesn't want anything to tarnish that reputation. Well, what you've just said there, that Drogheda looks after its own and that Drogheda thinks it's doing... We, do, we need to challenge that because they're certainly not looking after me and they don't speak for me and they don't speak to the victims or survivors that I speak to. So that needs to be reflected upon. And it is a matter of, of conscience right now, each of us as individuals, to, to, to say to ourselves, you know, this is the question, is it right that we defend a legal strategy that has been adopted by an individual that's blocking survivors of child sexual abuse. We need authentic, genuine leadership. We need compassion. We need open conversation. The silence needs to stop. Do you know that one of the biggest barriers for me as a survivor of that abuse is the silence that I've met. And so it's either it's further upsetting to see that that Silence is still being used as a weapon against survivors of child sexual abuse in 2020. And Paul Murphy, Paul Murphy, the chairperson of Dignity for Patients, uh, wrote to the councillors, asked them not to rescind to the freedom because he said Edmund Garvey was blameless. Well, Michael, when I saw that, I was absolutely stunned. Um, and I don't want to make it about Paul Murphy because hmm. Dignity for Patients, right, no, but I were think- very kind to me. And Bernadette Sullivan, who was an excellent CEO and the whistleblower of Shine, as we know. And was castigated. Correct and right. Supported me since 2013. And unfortunately, on the day my book was launched, Bernadette was to come and speak at that and she was unwell and that was fine and it was actually Paul Murphy that came and launched my book so I was very hurt the other day when I saw that because the one sentence in all of that letter is is the sentence that you have just pointed out in the fact that this individual and I'm calling him an individual because I think we need to remove any labels or attachments or beliefs or mindsets we have around the individual because we need to treat this just as an individual who's done this. And I think if we did, we might make 
we might make better choices right now and try and steer the ship back and give Drogheda, my, my hometown, its dignity back. The town I'm on about. Um, and that one sentence that this individual was blameless, I, I just, I had to go away. It's, it's just how I process and how I, I think and I have to work through. And when you make a choice, when you make a decision, when you say something, so important as that, you must also take ownership of the effects of that. So when that decision was made to adopt a legal strategy to obstruct, and nobody is debating this, it's, like we're, it's, we're in, there's articles in, in, the, in the papers in Dublin as well over this, and they're saying it's wrong, that it, the adoption of that legal strategy is wrong. You cannot say you're separate to that decision. End of story. Okay. And it's very unfortunate. And I really would love to know why Paul Murphy decided to write that letter. And, okay. and now where is he as he reflects upon the impact and effects of that? Okay. Well, the councillors will be voting on this, we think, on Monday of next week. uh, And I'm sure we'll have more conversation in between now and then about all of this. Jackie, thank you so much for coming into us today. Michael, Mm. can I just say thank you. Thanks. uh, Thank LMFM for the work that you have done in supporting Damien Farrell. And thank you, Damien Farrell. Never, ever say you're not doing things right. You're absolutely a beacon of light. And to all the survivors, too. I send you my love. And people of Drogheda. Please respectfully reach out to your local representatives and we elected them to represent us. And I don't know whether they sign a code of ethics or they must act in a specific way, but they must do the right thing and they must come forward and give their opinions regardless of where that sits. Okay. I think we'll be waiting. No comment uh, is order of the day for many of uh, the councillors, but thank you, Jackie Taff, for coming in to us today. Jackie's a client of uh, Dignity for Patients and a Therapist. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. Sergeant Mark Horan joins us uh, with uh, this week's report from Laytown Garda Station. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. And we're going to begin with a burglary in Dundalk. Yes, morning, uh, Michael. Good morning there to you and your listeners. Michael, correct. A burglary occurred there at Dusha Roden, Dundalk, between the dates of the 24th and the 25th of August just gone. A construction site was broken into. A large quantity of equipment was stolen overnight between those dates. Dundalk RD at this moment are seeking assistance from anyone who may have observed any activity at that location in the late evening or early morning on the 24th into the 25th of August and may have observed what might be considered a commercial-type vehicle parked up up or near that uh, site to contact uh, Dundalk Gar Station on 042-93-88-400. Another burglary to report on from, or in Omid, rather, over the weekend. That's right, Michael. Yeah, in Omid, in the Dromala uh, area of Omid, a burglary occurred at a residential building between the 24th and 26th of August last. This house was vacant at the time of the crime, but was completely ransacked and damaged was also caused to the house. 
we were asking for anybody who was uh, in the area in around that time who may have witnessed a car or a van parked offside in the area and who may have recognised people who they, who they maybe were aware that weren't from the local area in Omid and uh, if they're in a position to contact Dundalk Guard Station with any information that they may, ha- they may have and whoever slight that they feel it may be, it may be of assistance in cracking this case. There's a third burglary to report on. This one in Dunlear on Sunday just gone. Yeah, Michael, that's right. In Dunlear uh, um, on the 27th of August, uh, the day before yesterday, uh, the outhouses of a property in the Shamrock Grove area of the town was entered into and a large quantity of tools were unfortunately stolen. This occurred now later in the evening and I'm asking anybody who may have witnessed the taking of these tools at that property um, or uh, so any person who they would believe to be suspicious or any vehicles uh, to contact the Lear Guard Station or the Guard Confidential Line at 1-800-666-111. Next to a robbery from a man who was out for a walk in Drogheda. That's right, Michael, yeah. A gentleman was out walking on the 28th of August there uh, near uh, St. Peter's Cemetery in Drada. And in, in the early afternoon, about 1.10pm, he was approached by another law male where he was threatened with a blood-filled uh, syringe. Uh, the offender uh, left in the direction of the 20s area of Drada, having taken the, the, the injured party's wallet. And they uh, were asking for anybody who were in the 20s area or in the St. Peter's uh, Cemetery area of Drada on that date, in around the 1.10 p.m. area at that, at that time, to contact draw the guard station on 041-987-4200 or the guard confidential line on 1-800-666-111. OK, that was lunchtime yesterday. We stay in Drogheda and some right. damage done to a, a train in the town. Yes, Michael, that's correct. Unfortunately, there up at Drogheda train station between the dates of 23rd and 24th of August, a train carriage was damaged with spray paint there uh, uh, a number of people um, got onto the property and used their talents to unfortunately damage a carriage of a train. As a result of that, uh, it'll cost a large quantity of cash uh, to repair that train. I'm asking anybody who knows these people or may have seen that activity online through whatever avenue that is to contact draw the guard station, uh, please. Sergeant Mark Horan of Laytown Garda Station, thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.